What we believe shapes our worship. Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're in a series about corporate worship called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. We've been learning in the previous lessons that we gather each Lord's Day to be served and that worship is a heart of discipleship. Today we're looking at how there's an inseparable relationship between worship and doctrine. Here's John with today's lesson called Our Theology Affects Our Worship, Part 1. Why do we gather together on the Lord's Day each Sunday? Here's the third reason why. What we do in worship creates and affects our theology, our worship, what we do in worship. Over the past 12 years of my life, as I have grown in my understanding of Reformed theology, um, I have become increasingly interested in and convicted about what happens in worship, liturgy. Um, the class that I took with Sinclair Ferguson on worship, um, it made me more aware of this inseparable connection between theology and worship, what we believe and what we do in worship. And so woven throughout this whole series on the corporate worship that we're looking at, on the liturgy of the church, is the idea that how we pray, how we worship, indicates what we believe. Let me say that again. Woven through this whole series on corporate worship is the idea that how we pray, how we worship, indicates what we believe. So how did I come to this understanding, and why is this idea an important lesson that we need to understand for the corporate worship of the church? First of all, it's important that we begin to understand the historical origin of this idea, that is, that uh, what we do affects what we believe, and what we believe affects what we do. We need to understand the historical origin of that. This idea dates all the way back to the 5th century, back to the 400s, with a lay monk, now you're going to like this name, Prosper of Aquitaine. Quite a name, isn't it? Good old Prosper. <laughs> um, Prosper of Aquitaine. Who was Prosper? Prosper was a disciple of St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, depending on where you're from. And he was a defender of St. Augustine's theology. And he got into a controversy over baptism. And so he penned the following motto in his controversy over baptism. He said this, quote, The rule of believing establishes the rule of supplicating. What you believe establishes how you pray. So what he was arguing for in this controversy, he was arguing for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone in the 5th century. He was seeking to show that the reason the church prays for all people's salvation, the rule of supplicating, is because faith is purely the result of God's grace. It's a gift, the rule of believing. If you believe that faith is a gift given by grace alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that sinners are saved by grace alone, you will pray for them like that. What you believe affects how you worship. And that's what Prosper says here. 
And so the church's liturgy, he taught, underscored the belief of the church. And then he said that the belief of the church created and affected the liturgy of the church. And so the early church fathers, when you look back, they understood that the practices that we do together in corporate worship end up powerfully shaping our faith, what we believe. Prosper's motto has come to be summarized in a very simple Latin phrase. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but this is how it goes. I'll tell you what it means. Randy Lex Credendi, the law of praying, the law of believing. And so here, this vital point that we're making is this. There is an inseparable relationship between liturgy and doctrine. You cannot separate them. How we pray affects what we believe. And what we believe affects how we pray. Now, this is clearly demonstrated from the life of Christ himself. I'll just give you one quick example. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Luke says that Jesus, when he had finished praying in a certain place, listen, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. The disciples were watching and listening to Jesus' prayer, his liturgy, the form, the element of his liturgy, his worship. And there was something unique and powerfully instructive, formative about the way Jesus prayed. Jesus didn't pray like everybody else. There was something different that engaged them. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray like this, the way John did. Teach us to pray. And in response to his disciples' request, Jesus gives the most perfect liturgical pattern for righteous or authentic prayer ever penned known as the Lord's Prayer or really uh, the Disciples' Prayer. And so the church's worship and beliefs have reciprocal effects on each other. A theology of worship affects worship practices and the actions of worship call attention to and highlight as well as affect the beliefs of the church. Now, let me give you two examples of how this looks. Um, And it's important to look at these examples and to examine the historical origins of all this so that you kind of get a sense of where you might have come from, and, and, and then you get a sense of where we as a church are going and why we're going there. So let me give you two examples. A theology of worship affects worship practices. What you believe affects what you do, and what you do highlights what you believe and also affects what you believe. It reinforces it. It shapes you. It forms you. The first example from church history comes from what's called revivalism. Revivalism worship, revivalistic worship. Since the 19th century, uh, evangelical worship styles, liturgy, have been largely influenced and formed, or what I would say, argued deformed, by the theology of Charles Finney and the revivalistic uh, tradition in this country. Um, one of my historical uh, uh, professors, uh, Scott Clark, Dr. Clark, he's from Oxford, he said, if you want to change the theology of the future, change the liturgy today. 
Church history bears witness to the truth of this maxim. He's exactly right. Let me talk to you about a little bit about revivalism and help you understand it, because a great majority of us in this room grew up in revivalism. I grew up in it. Revivalism developed as an order of worship that has come to dominate American Protestant worship. Uh, James White, who is a professor of liturgical studies at Drew University, he's writing about Charles Finney. Listen to what he says. He says that Charles Finney may be the most influential liturgical reformer in American history. In his famous work, Lectures on Revivals of Religion, written in 1835, Charles Finney wrote about what he called, quote, new measures, new methods, new liturgical forms for worship. What were some of these new measures that he came up with and introduced to the church to bring about this liturgical reformation in the church? Let me give you some examples of the new measures. Protracted daily, quote, revival meetings as opposed to just regular weekly meetings on the Lord's Day. What they announced is, we're going to have revival meetings. How many of you grew up with that? I did. Every year, in the springtime, First Baptist Church of Lincolnton, we're going to have revival. And the preacher's going to get there and scream and holler and talk and whip up the church, and then it's going to culminate in calling people to come forward to the altar to get right with God and to do whatever's going to happen, because we're going to have revival. That came from Charles Finney. The other new measures, um, you had informal rather than reverential language, especially in corporate prayer. Because everybody knows that the spontaneous, extemporaneous prayer is way more spiritual and effective than just reading road prayers that are written. Um, Then you had the hasty admission of new converts to church membership without any baptism classes, without any membership classes, without any catechism classes, not even knowing what they believe. Just get them in. Let's let's, let's just get them in. Let's get the results. And then uh, Finney introduced what was called the anxious bench. How many of you have heard of the anxious bench? Anybody? The anxious bench was a precursor to what we call the altar call. How many of you have ever heard of an altar call? Right? Just as I am, 50 times over, so the people will come forward to the altar call. Right? That's Charles Finney. The anxious bench was a special seat or seats up at the front for singling persons out who felt a special urgency about their salvation. So they would come sit in the anxious bench. Finney and early revival preachers employed what they called preparatory songs or the preliminaries to the worship service to, quote, warm people up to worship. Got to warm them up. And so then you would, after you would have these warm-up periods of what they called the preliminaries, you would have these extended and persuasive sermons that would culminate in an exhortation to, quote, accept Christ with the physical act of coming forward to the anxious bench to be smitten in the spirit. To be smitten in the spirit would involve things like emotional tactics that led people to faint and weep and then, quote, have other excitements as Finney and his followers called them. Now, let me give you the basic order, the basic liturgy of revivalism worship. This is what they constructed. 
The basic order of revivalism worship consisted of a three-part form, which historians sometimes describe as the hymn sandwich. And the reason they did that is because the three-part form would begin with a lot of warm-up singing, and then it would conclude with a lot of emotional singing to make your atmosphere proper so people would come forward. So they would sandwich it in with all this warm-up and emotional singing. So you had this three-part form. So here's how it went. Revivalistic liturgy began with the song of praise service. And it was, a, as I said, it was a basic technique, Finney said, of, quote, warming up people with songs. Second, the song service would then lead to a polished sermon that was supposed to be intended to produce immediate results and obvious fruit, a new harvest of conversion. And Americans, what? We, we respect success, right? So the more success you have, the more money you can raise for your tent revivals that come to town. And then thirdly, after you went to this polished sermon that led to the immediate results, the sermon would culminate and build up to this one big point of the call to come forward to make a, quote, decision to accept Christ. And this moment of decision is accompanied by, as I said, emotional music intended to create a conducive, quote, atmosphere for the respondents to come. And so the entire service was intended to build to a crisis moment, a definitive conversion experience, a harvest of new converts. So that's revivalism worship, and that was its liturgy. And these are the new measures that Charles Fiddy invented in the 19th century. Now, what is significant about Finney's new measures, his liturgical reformation, was his rationale and theology for doing this. Because remember, what you believe affects how you're going to worship. What beliefs did he have that created these new liturgical forms of worship in the church? Well, what you need to understand is that Finney's approach to worship, the worship of the church is grounded in a theological tradition called Pelagianism. And listen very carefully, because this is the heart of it. Who is Pelagius? There's another one. We got Prosper, and now we have Pelagius, and they were both in the 5th century. It's fun to read church history, isn't it? These funny little names. Never name your kid Pelagius. Because he is, you're going to see, the most condemned heretic in the history of the church. Pelagius was a 5th century British monk who was also a, a contemporary and opponent of St. Augustine and Prosper, St. Prosper. Pelagius rejected the doctrine of original sin. What is original sin? Original sin just simply teaches it, the fallen condition in which every person is born or conceived. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Um, Pelagius rejected that. He said, that's not true. Pelagius held that Adam's sin only affected Adam. Didn't affect anybody else. The only negative effect that Adam has on his posterity is the setting of a bad example. And so for Pelagius, he says, conversely, if Adam was setting a bad example, 
and you share only in Adam's guilt, if you follow his bad example, Christ, you become righteous by choosing to follow Christ's good example. That was salvation for Pelagius. Finney followed Pelagius. He followed a 5th century heretic who has been condemned by more church councils than any other person in church history. Like Pelagius, Charles Finney rejected the doctrine of original sin. He did not believe in that. Finney rejected the idea that we're all born in this world inheriting Adam's guilt and corruption. He rejected the notion that we are in bondage to a sinful nature, that we are dead in sin. Say it like this, that we sin because we are sinners. He did not believe that, and he utterly rejected it. He referred to the doctrine of original sin, quote, as anti-scriptural and nonsensical dogma, end quote. Simply put, Finney denied that human beings possess a sinful nature, of which David, as I just quoted, confesses in Psalm 51, verse 5. He utterly rejected that. And so following Pelagius, Finney taught that if, that if Adam leads a person into sin, it is not because that person has inherited Adam's guilt and corruption. Rather, a person is led to sin because they simply chose to follow Adam's bad example. And then, like Pelagius, Finney held to Christ, the second Adam, as saving by, guess what? Example. Because Christ saves by example when he died on the cross, he did not make a substitutionary atonement. So guess what Finney ended up doing? He denied substitutionary atonement. In addition to rejecting original sin, in addition to rejecting substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, Charles Finney also denied and rejected justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What is imputed righteousness? It's simply, it's very simple. Christ obeyed the whole law for you, and by grace through faith alone, all of that perfect obedience is given to you as a gift so that you're counted just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. You're righteous, you're justified. Charles Finney said, I reject that wholly and totally. And this is what he called imputed righteousness. Quote, a most false and nonsensical assumption, end quote. And then he goes on to say this about the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Quote, Christ's righteousness could no more than justify himself. It can never be imputed to us. It was naturally impossible for him then to obey on our behalf. He says this. He says that, the imputed righteousness of Christ, justification by grace alone through faith alone, he says that represents, this representing of the atonement as the ground of the sinner's justification. Listen, representing of the atonement as the ground of the sinner's justification has been a sad occasion of stumbling to many, end quote. 
wholehearted rejection of the core heart of the gospel. Finney's rejection of original sin led him to deny that conversion was a supernatural, gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and conversion, that's not a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. This is something that a sinner can do for himself. And so this is reflected in one of his most popular sermons, which is entitled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Good luck with that. He said conversion is not a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of grace. He says conversion is simply a matter of employing, quote, the right measure, the right liturgical form. Finney believed that human beings were capable of choosing whether they would be corrupt by nature or redeemed by Christ. And so based on all of his theological errors... His beliefs, what you believe determines what you do in worship. Based on his theological beliefs and in contrast to the historical liturgical worship of the church, Finney instituted liturgical reformation to the church and lectures on revivals of religion. Listen to what he says about the liturgy of the church. Quote, God has established no particular measures to be used in worship. Rather, we're left in the dark as to the measures which were pursued by the apostles and primitive preachers. For the apostles only commission from Christ, do it the best way you can. It is silly. Do it the best way you can. Ask wisdom from God. Use the faculties that he has given you, end quote. The essential test for Charles Finney for worship was a pragmatic one. And this was the question he asked and taught people to ask about their worship. Does it work? He said, if so, keep it. If not, discard it, end quote. So, Finney and his associates represent a liturgical revolution not based on the historical orthodox theology of the church, but based on pure philosophical pragmatism. For Finney, the test for worship was its effectiveness in producing converts, listen, in a largely unchurched nation. Or in a more colloquial way of putting it, the way I said it last week, reach the lost at any cost. Never changing message, ever changing methods. So what we see is that Finney's liturgical reformation clearly shows that your theology affects your worship practices. And those worship practices done over and over and over will eventually affect what you believe. They're inseparable. Let me remind you, Finney redacted the Reformation doctrine of simul justus et peccator, which is just simply this, simultaneously righteous and sinner. You're just at the same time righteous and sinner as a Christian. Finney utterly rejected that. Of this doctrine, 
Finney writes, quote, This error has slain more souls, I fear, than all the universalism that ever cursed the world. End quote. And then he said, when every Christian sins, he comes under condemnation. And he must repent and do his first works or be lost. End quote. We don't believe that. We do not believe that when you sin as a Christian, you come under condemnation. Why? Because we believe in justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. When I sin, I do not come under condemnation. Yes, I must repent. But I don't repent in order to get saved again, as Finney said, or be lost. I do not lose my salvation. I lose the sweetness of my salvation. Therefore, I repent so I can continue to enjoy the freedom of my salvation. I never lose it. Thanks, John. You just heard a message called, Our Theology Affects Our Worship, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.